Hello and welcome to Fertility Talks, the Therapy Fertility Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Von Medding, and this season I'll be sitting down with none other than Medical Director of Therapy Fertility, Dr. John Kennedy. Each week, we will be chatting all things fertility, trying to conceive, and much, much more. We hope that through this series, through honest conversations and information, we can strip away some of the stigma that sometimes comes hand in hand with infertility and fertility treatment in Ireland. This week, we are doing a deep dive into IVF and ICSI, which of course are two of the most popular and successful fertility treatments available and will make up the majority of cycles at Therapy Fertility. So John, let's start at the very beginning, IVF. Uh, IVF, it stands for in vitro fertilization. Uh, Vitro is in glass, so it's in a a laboratory. So the Mm -hmm. fertilization happens outside the body. Mm -hmm. In vivo would be in life, inside the body. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of IVF is to maximize a woman or a couple's chance of having a baby in the minimum amount of time. Mm -hmm. It's probably, no it is, pound for pound, the most efficient and best fertility treatment that we have out there. We know that every month you generate a whole pile of eggs and you throw them away and you recruit maybe one or two to give you a shot at fertility that month. What we're trying to do with IVF, with the medications in IVF, is get the body to produce more of those eggs that were going to be lost that month anyway. So that straight up answers one of the most common questions we get asked, which is, does doing IVF compromise my future fertility? Am I stealing from the future? Yeah, are you taking eggs from the next cycle? Exactly. And yeah. you're not, you're taking eggs that were going to be lost that month anyway. Okay. That's what we think. Okay. So you get the body to superovulation instead of normal ovulation, superovulation. You get it to produce more eggs. You then take those eggs out and you fertilize them in the laboratory. And then you grow out the resulting embryos for a number of days. We'll go into that. And then you select the best one or two, put them back in the womb. And the beauty of modern IVF is that if you have embryos left over, you can freeze them. Mm. And that gives you good shots. So you won't have to go through the whole cycle again if you have frozen embryos. Exactly. Yeah. So So, it's more efficient. So is that why you feel so crappy sometimes on an IVF cycle? Because you're having a supercharged... Yeah. So the the ovary is usually going to be one to two centimeters in size. If you've got a very good response in an IVF cycle, the ovary could be maybe six centimeters so, it's so very four times, and you've and got two of them, so there's yeah. one on each side, so it's heavy and it's dragging and it's bloating. And additionally, we make light of it. We say the hormonal effects of the medications, they really aren't too bad, they're usually quite well tolerated. And then we throw in some kind of almost placebo line, like you might feel a little bit weepy. <laughs> I do think we perhaps underrepresent some of the hormonal side effects. I think they're very variable. So it's tough to say you're going to have a really tough time with it because you might not. Yeah, some but people th- do and some people don't. There's a whole spectrum of... Exactly. But it is not uncommon. It's not desperately unusual to feel a bit crappy on the fertility medications yeah. as well. So yeah. the whole thing. And then at the far end, once you've had your fertilization and you're preparing for your transfer, you go on progesterone. Now, when people think of something like the combined oral contraceptive pill, mm-hmm. what's in that? It's estrogen and progesterone. Now... Oestrogen is brilliant. Oestrogen makes you feel fantastic. <laughs> Oestrogen is what young women have in spades and old, older women, it drops off when you become menopausal. So all like 
uh, skin dryness, libido, mood, all the rest are intimately linked to the amount of estrogen that's coursing around your body at any given time. So when you give somebody estrogen, they generally feel pretty good. Not always, but yeah. generally. Progesterone is a little bit the other way. All the bad side effects that you associate with the pill, the breast tenderness mm. and the mood swings and skin acne and things like that, that's all progesterone. Yeah. So you put somebody on progesterone, which you have to, Mm -hmm. for, for the most part in a fertility cycle, they're going to feel a little bit not so great yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we talked about IVF. What is ICSI then? So IVF is the process where you take the egg out, you take the sperm sample, and you put each egg in a dish with about 150,000 sperm, give or take. ICSI is the process whereby you take each egg, you strip away the little outer ring of cells called the cumulus, away from it, and you inject a normal-looking normal mobile sperm into the egg. So one. One, just, one. One, just the one sperm. So why might you do one, one rather than the other? Well, ICSI's brilliant if there's a sperm problem, if there aren't a huge number of normal-looking sperm. There are clinics out there, and there was a move in the last number of years, which has kind of been pushed back on, to move all cycles to ICSI. Why wouldn't you do ICSI? Mm. You're there, you've got the eggs, why not? There is maybe some very, very limited data, and it's very controversial, that says ICSI, unless you select your cases properly, might be associated with a higher rate of chromosomal or structural problems in children. Now, okay. that's very difficult to prove, and I do think that maybe it's not due to the ICSI, it's due to the need for the ICSI. Okay. So if you've got people with severe sperm problems, you have to do ICSI on. Maybe they're more likely, in fact, it's probably fair to say they are slightly more likely to have a child with a problem than not. And so you're seeing a higher incidence of those things in cases where you do ICSI. Sometimes, very rarely, it's about one in a thousand cases. You put the eggs and the sperm in the dish together and you come back the next day and fertilization hasn't happened. They haven't stuck together at all. So nothing's happened, no embryos. Yeah, and we, we know there are some genetic causes behind that, but we also know it can happen for reasons we don't fully understand that, it's called no binding. And in those cases, you say, right, we should do ICSI next time. And every time, it's really unfortunate, you have that conversation, you, the question you're immediately asked is, why the hell didn't you do ICSI the first time, if that's yeah. a risk, because it's one in a thousand. And you're manipulating eggs and you're manipulating sperm more when you do ICSI than when you do IVF. I don't really like that word natural because I think there's nothing really natural about what we're doing here at all. <laughs> but IVF is a more natural way of fertilization than ICSI. ICSI is more process, it's more involvement, and with process involvement, no matter how careful and good you are, comes risk. Yeah. So I prefer not to do it than to do it. That being said, most modern clinics would be about a 50-50 split yeah. on ICSI-IVF. And what we tend to do is if we think if we look at the sperm on the day that we collect the eggs or if we know in advance there's a problem with the sperm, think, look, do you know what? We think the fertilization might take a bit of a hit. If we don't do ICSI, we really should. We should have a low threshold for doing ICSI because we think it's very, very safe. We think it's very, very effective. But when all things are ideal and equal, you do it. You'll go with IVF. And I suppose, yeah, it is a little bit more natural because it's, in essence, allowing natural selection to yeah. an extent, yeah. seeing which... You know. So, for example, with something like the reciprocal IVF mm -hmm. program or the shared motherhood program, that sperm that's being used will all be donor sperm. Yeah. So automatically... It's going to be excellent sperm. It's going to be IVF. 
Yeah. It's not going to be ICSI unless there's some grandiose reason that somebody had no binding before or some weird edge case. Yeah. It's going to be IVF. Or on the day when, when you come to it, you're say, hang on, we need to do ICSI here. Absolutely. We yeah. call the sperm and we're shocked because it doesn't look like that's rare as hen's teeth, thankfully. <laughs> but then, yes, you could transition. But by and large, 99.9% are going to be IVF. Okay, so the majority of people coming through therapy fertility are going to be having either IVF or ICSI. Yes. People are also going to be having IUI. Yes. Which, let's just talk about that very briefly. Yeah, so the <laughs> the very brief Cliff Notes version is turkey basting. Um, <laughs> IUI is intrauterine insemination. It's the process of giving somebody some medication, so they'll recruit one or two eggs, no more than that, triggering the release of those eggs. And when we know those eggs are being released, Taking a sperm sample, be it a partner sample or a donor sample, washing it, preparing it, and putting it in at the top of the womb, shortening the journey the sperm has to make to get to the egg. So it's not something that people can actually do at home because it is... You, you can, and there are home insemination kits. When we do an IUI, we pass a small tube of catheter right into the top of the womb. Yeah. When you do it at home, you, you generally just pass it into, into the, the vagina yeah, or into yeah, the exactly, tip of the yeah. cervix. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're, we're, we're adding more of a shortcut. Yeah. And we're being much more metric in terms of the timing and the release of the eggs and the stimulation. And you're also washing the sperm. And And we're also washing and validating the sperm. And we know that certainly in the case of donor sperm, it's coming from a reliable source where the person's been screened sure. psychologically mm-hmm. and like HIV and hepatitis yeah. and, 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 and genetically. Um, so what are, you know... I know people like to talk about success rates, <laughs> but what, you know, if, if you're looking at, you know, someone coming in and, and wanting to do IUI versus an IVF cycle, what, what, what's the difference? So I've been, I've been talking a fair bit to, to the team about this recently, and I'm going to declare a bias. I think IUI has its place, and I'm going to talk about cases where I think IUI is a very good idea. But speaking as somebody who is working in an IVF clinic, I have a bias towards IVF. Mm. We do IUI. I think the advantages that IUI brings to the table is that it is simpler and easier and cheaper than IVF. When I say cheaper, it is financially cheaper. It's physically a little bit cheaper because if there's less involved in it, but I'll break that down a little bit more. And it's emotionally and psychologically a little bit cheaper because it doesn't have quite the same level of stress associated with it if it doesn't work. Yeah, because typically. Yeah. Because it's not anticipated to work as well. Yeah, a lot of people are like, okay, we're going to do this a couple of months and, exactly. and see how it goes. Yeah, Exactly. So it does have th- some things going for it. What does it have against it? Well, financially, it's cheaper, but it's probably substantially less successful. As a general rule of thumb, and this doesn't apply to everybody, one IVF is equal to three IUIs, mm. give or take. Maybe one IVF is a little bit better than three IUIs. So... You need to go through three IUIs to one IVF. And when you look at the cost of IUI versus the cost of IVF, that narrows the financial gain that you're making a lot. Physically, sure, it's easier, but you're still taking injections, you're still taking tablets, you're still attending for a scan, you're still coming in for a procedure. So in real terms, it's probably as much hassle and impact on your day-to-day life as IVF is. And you don't get the chance to freeze any embryos. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Emotionally and psychologically, easier, but IVF is a test as well as a treatment. The one thing we really don't know before when we do all our testing, we check your AMH, and we look at your antral follicle count, we try to guess how many eggs we're going to get, we can never speak to egg quality. 
We just mm. can't do it. We can speak to sperm quality, but not to egg quality because we're not looking at the eggs. When you do IVF, you take eggs out and you make embryos with them. And that is a test of those eggs. Mm. Now, if I only look at 10 eggs, it's hard for me to make sweeping judgments mm -hmm. about all your eggs based on that. But I get a flavor. I get an idea. And as we build more and more cycles and get more eggs, you build up a clearer and clearer picture of that person's egg quality. So functionally, you learn an awful lot more from an IVF cycle. Win, lose or draw, you learn. There's huge learnings. It's a huge diagnostic test. That's not why we do it. We do it to get babies. But <laughs> that's one of the secondary gains. With IUI, you learn virtually nothing. Because if, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work and you don't necessarily... If it works, boule bus more, big round of applause. We're all delighted. Yeah. If it doesn't work, it's as if you didn't do it at all. Yeah. You don't know was an egg released. You don't know did the sperm meet the egg. Did fertilization happen? Did sure. the embryo develop? Did implantation? You don't know any of this stuff. And so, and this is what you really need to get across to people at the start, negative IUI is not so much associated with disappointment as it is with frustration. Yeah. It's frustrating. Because you don't know. And you feel... And you're spending money. You're, and you've got nowhere, yeah. you've learned nothing, you've wasted time, you've wasted money. Now, if you have this conversation before they start the IUI, it's a hell of a lot easier. Yeah. Because people are prepared and they're making an informed choice and that's great. But if you don't, they generally people who've done a few IUIs and it hasn't worked, you ask them, they'll tell you they wish they hadn't done them. Yeah. Well, not all of them, but some. Yeah. Uh, whereas somebody who's done IVF, they're generally okay with the fact they've done IVF even hasn't worked because they've learned a lot they've got to different points and yeah. different parts of the journey but IUI tends to lead on to IVF yeah I know a lot of people who have done IUI in so who does IUI well because it's pitched as being a more natural way of doing things same-sex couples mm -hmm. and single women tend to veer towards IUI at the outset and I can see why <clears throat> it makes a lot of sense. It looks better. If you're young and you're healthy, you've got maybe a 20, 17 to 20% chance of a positive pregnancy test with one IUI. It's not terrible. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it, it racks up. And so it's a very reasonable thing to do. But, and this is where my bias kicks in, coming into a fertility clinic with fertility issues, wanting to get pregnant, be it because of a sexual orientation or being being a lesbian or because you're not in a relationship or because you're struggling to conceive. It's tough. It's a tough thing to do. My belief is the less time you spend engaged with fertility services, mm -hmm. the better off your life is. Mm. Yeah. You know, I like you too, but the less time <laughs> you spend, the better off you are. So I prefer people to come in hit the ground hard, do the thing that's more likely to result in a baby in a shorter period of time mm. and get the hell out. That seems pretty reasonable to me. It, but that involves more medicalization, more medicine, yeah. more initial outlay, tougher emotional and psychological costs. But I'm funneling it all down to a tighter, tighter focus. That being said, if somebody wants to do IUI and they're a good candidate, we won't fall out over it. Absolutely. And yeah, like plenty of babies are, are born through IUI and plenty of people are very happy with their, you know. 100%. Yeah. It's a perfectly chromulent, it's a perfectly acceptable yeah. uh, fertility option. I suppose it's just when it doesn't work. And when it doesn't exactly. work, cycle after cycle, and then you end up going to IVF and anyways, anyway. and then you're like, Jesus, so I wish I had done this I'm, in the first I think place. in countries where there is public funding services, a lot of the times they'll make you do a number of IUIs before they'll fund, uh, before they'll fund yeah. IVF. And that's sort of normalized 
perhaps incorrectly normalized thing oh you should fail IUI before you do IVF whereas I want to take IVF out of that dark corner and bring it up and go no listen let's just rather than have this woman engage with health services for a year let's have her engage with health services for six months yeah because honestly you if you're just looking purely from a public service point of view there's a lot of savings in that as well yeah. Get them in, get them out, you know. Totally. So. Um, so let's go back to IVF and ICSI. Yep. How long should someone wait? Now we're talking about heterosexual couples who are having yep. unprotected intercourse. Like how long should someone wait before they are talking to someone like you or so, so accessing help? World Health Organization has advice on this. It says if you're trying over a year if you're under 35 over six months if you're over 35 then seek assistance seek information that's because you turn into a pumpkin (laughs) on the eve exactly (laughs) exactly so that's a pretty artificial thing um i think they're reasonable metrics to look at you can start getting tested but i would be an advocate of earlier testing i like the idea of a 28 year old couple who are thinking about getting married, her getting an AMH checked and him getting a semen analysis done. Well, it's so simple as well, Adore. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I, I I, personally would like to flip all of that on its head and to say, do you know what? Maybe you don't have to run into problems before you seek help. Mm. And seeking help, getting information does not necessarily mean doing fertility treatment. That's Yeah, that's getting fertility testing doesn't mean you're ever going to get fertility treatment. Because the accusation yeah. is, oh, he just wants to get them in. He just wants to IVF. And, no, no, I don't. I just want you to know. And then off you go. Because if you're trying for, if you're 35 years old, 34 years old, and you've been trying for a year and you haven't gotten pregnant, that's a lot easier if you know your AMH is normal and there's no panic, you know yeah. the semen analysis is normal, you know the tubes are open, you know the other baseline bloods are okay. That should be reassuring. We know that ugh, average conception rate is about 17% per month under ideal circumstances. We know that 90% of couples will conceive within one year, 95% within two years. So somebody is just going to be in that position for no other reason than just dumb bad luck. Now, does that person need... IVF. Well, that's an interesting question. If you talk to somebody who's publicly providing a service, the answer is generally speaking, no, no, they don't. They'll get pregnant themselves. But personally speaking, I like that person to have a choice Mm. and go, you know what? You can keep trying and in another six months, you've got a pretty good shot. I'm looking at the dice on the table. You've got a pretty good shot at getting pregnant. Or I can up your odds, but it's effort. It's cost. It's time. And it's either IUI or IVF or something else. And the sooner people get all that information, that information about their own potential, their own fertility chances, and they get information about what their options are, the timelines and the chances associated with those options, then whatever they decide to do is the right thing to do. Yeah. So, oh, no, you can't come in for testing. You've only been trying for three months. No, come in for testing. At if, any stage. At any stage. Yeah. And I've had people where I've said to them, look, you've only been trying for three or four months. It's... Give yourself a t- some time, take a step back, relax. And the vast majority of people obviously just take that advice and go, listen, we're going to keep trying ourselves. And in three months, if nothing's happened, we'll give you a shout and we're already in the system. We've already had the testing done sure. and it'll be much faster. And I go, great idea. Some people go, no, I want to focus on this. I've got time sensitive things coming up. And yep. it's very important you explain to those people that even what you're doing, there's no guarantee of success. Mm-hmm. All you're doing is changing the odds yep. a lot, but, but changing the odds. And it's up to them. It's... It's not my time and effort. Yeah. There's a bit of it, but I'm 
being compensated for that. That's yeah. the point of the service. It's their time and effort mm. that I want to be respectful of. Yeah. And the job is to make sure they understand the limitations and the opportunities mm-hmm. that we can bring. Um, so there's obviously some circumstances where people would be advised to seek help sooner. So, well, I mean, obviously same sex couples, um, single people coming in. Um, but are there any like medical conditions or sure. other circumstances sure. where people just are going to need fertility assistance? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's people if you've had a surgery and you've had an ovary removed, obviously that's that's the thing. If you've had a history of undescended testes, then it's maybe more likely mm-hmm. that there's a problem with the sperm. If one thing that tends to get missed, like a cancer diagnosis, which is, you know, yep. that, that that kind of thing. But one thing that tends to get missed a little bit is family histories. If you've got a family family history of subfertility or yep. infertility, and it's the really bad dad joke that having children is registered. If your parents didn't have any kids, chances are you won't either. But <laughs> infertility issues, sorry. Infertility issues do tend to run generationally. Historically, earlier menopause, lower ovarian reserves do have a genetic component to them. So if your mother and your sister struggled, then it's a good idea for that to be on your radar. Equally, if you've got a a family history of something like endometriosis, that's a good idea. It should be on your radar and should be be ticking along. But I'd like to normalize that for everybody because all I'm doing is really trying to identify risk groups when I could just identify Everybody. And it's about <laughs> prevention rather than problem. And, yeah. and identifying issues earlier work, works out better. So I think if you've got a family history of endometriosis, if you've got a history of surgeries, if you are worried if other people in your family or if you have friends, and I know there's no genetic link between your friend needing IVF, but that's an opportunity for Just somebody to go. Just be conscious of it. Be conscious. Get checked. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so another couple of questions about like the IVF ICSI process. Mm-hmm. Um, there are embryo transfers. You know, what, what, what are all those different stages of embryo development and why would you transfer, you know, at, at certain stages? So here's where the podcast medium lets us down a little bit because I would often start drawing things out on a piece of paper. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to try to describe it as best I can. So you collect the eggs, you put the eggs and sperm together and they fertilize. Not all the eggs will be mature, not all the eggs will fertilize. You then check them on day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. On day one, they're two cell embryos. On day two, they're four cell embryos. On day three, they're eight to ten cell embryos. On day four, they jump from being an eight cell embryo to what's called a compacting morula, a loosely bound collection of about 100 cells or so. So there's massive growth on that day. It's got proliferation. It goes boom. And then day four to day five, give or take, they turn into what's called a blastocyst. A blastocyst has a ring of cells around the outside of the embryo that's going to form the placenta and the membranes. It's called the trophoectoderm. And it's got an inner cell mass that's going to form the baby. So that's when you look at the little diagrams online, you see the rapidly, and then the pictures start to change on day four and day five. You look at that and you realize that the steps between day one and day three are relatively simple. All the embryo is being asked to do is become, all the cells are being asked to do rather, are become themselves again. Mm. Mitosis, just divide. Day four, they're dividing much more rapidly. That's called proliferation. So there's more and more parts of the blueprint, the mm. genome being accessed to make that change happen. And then day four to five, you're getting proliferation and differentiation. So cells are becoming different kinds of cells. Sure. And that's even more complex. So more and more parts of the uh, 
genetic pattern are being accessed again at that stage. So embryos should, in the main, be able to make it to day three, and we would anticipate maybe 60, 70% of all, maybe even more of, of day one embryos will make it to day three easily. So you can put an embryo back in on day three, but you've got five or six embryos, say, in front of you, and you don't know which is the good one. They all look pretty good. None of them have been particularly challenged. So you know a lot of those embryos won't make it to day five and certainly won't become a baby, but you don't really know which ones. So if you put it back in, you it's a little bit more of a lucky dip. And I had an old colleague who used to say day three embryos are little liars. <laughs> because on day four and day five, things could go they could, horribly. They, 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 might, yeah. they might collapse. So putting an embryo back in on day three is, it's still the same embryo as it would be on day five. Okay, putting an embryo back in on day three, I think, is a chancier proposition. Because you don't have the information you don't of have what's going to happen. As much information. Yeah. Exactly correct. So I like to go out to day five. Now, on day five, you're going to have less embryos. Yeah. Um, less than half of our day one embryos make it to day five. And even on day five, depending on your age and circumstances, half of the good looking embryos on day five probably won't give you a baby. Yeah. But it's still a higher shot. So I like to go out to day five. So how do we ever get into this situation? Why wouldn't day five be normalized? Because day five, I mean, it's a newer phenomenon and IVF has been around for, oh God knows, more than 20 years maybe at this point, but it's still new. It used to be that it was more problematic to grow embryos in the lab to day five, that it was less controlled and maybe there was a risk to the embryos in those extra two days. That's gone by the wayside now with time-lapse machines little the embryoscope embryoscope yeah. but the little machine that the embryo sits in it's a very secure environment i do not believe at all that the lab is a worse environment than the, the, womb. the womb yeah the other thing that we get told is well you're putting the embryo back in on day three back into its natural environment which is the best environment for it mm. i was like no you're not the natural environment for a day three embryo is not the uterus it's the tube yeah. It's still so you're not, which has a different, slightly different physiological makeup. Now I'm not saying putting a day three embryo back in is a bad idea for the embryo. It's perfectly fine. We've got loads of data on that, but it's not better. So you're not fooling yourself. But of course, what I do, or what most modern fertility clinics do, and at this point in taking everybody out to blastocyst before doing a transfer, is risking the fact that by day five you will have no embryos to transfer, yeah. and that's devastating. Yeah. But it's not worse than putting an embryo back in on day three, inflicting a two-week wait on the woman and the couple. And then it doesn't work anyway. And then it doesn't work. And you've lost the information. Yeah, because at least you if blinded you grew yourself. up to day five, you'd know you'd something was happening you'd at day know, four. Yeah. And you can use that. And that goes back to the diagnostic thing we were talking about. You'd be able to use that to, to advance the conversation. Mm. To, to direct and go, look, this is where the issue is. This is the solution. And, and so on and so forth. So I'm a big fan of day five, have been for a long, long time. And I personally believe day three transfers and freezes shouldn't really be done anymore. I think they've gone out with the arc and uh, I've, I've seen people and it's, it's falling away now, but I saw plenty of people with, right, you only have a very limited number of embryos on day three. Let's do a transfer now. Because that way I can say I've done a transfer. Yeah. You've had a transfer. Everybody's feeling pretty good for the next two weeks. I think that's just an agreed lie. Yeah. And I don't I don't personally buy into any statistics, and I've looked at the data on this, where it goes, oh, no, you're more likely to have a baby with a day three transfer. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I personally would think it, it's a, 
a lot worse to go through the two weeks hoping that something has worked um, rather than just, you know, having that conversation. And everybody's different. And some people just really want that transfer. What I do find is that you really need to have this conversation before the cycle starts. Yeah. If you haven't explained the logic and what you're trying to do, if you get to day two, say, and there's only one embryo there, and you haven't had the conversation, it's this. Of course, too panic, yeah, too of emotion. course, yeah. You're just like, please, just do and, anything. And you can't yeah, have course. a rational conversation at that point. Yeah, yeah. Which is not to say they're rational, but you can't have. Well, the same. no, you're like completely in the in the middle of it. Exactly. You know? yeah. So, so it's very important to get that across the line at the start. Or to say, listen, we are an organization that has your best interests at heart. Mm. We believe the best way to do it is this way. So that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Pure are there any potential side effects to doing IVF and ICSI? Yeah, yeah, there are. I mean, look, there's risks. As I said earlier, you're growing the embryos and rather like a very swollen apple on a tree, it can twist and cut off its own blood supply and that's called torsion. That's very rare. Um, Sorry, the eggs. Oh, risks to the eggs. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, 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 yeah. So, are there any risks to a, you know, so a person going through the fertility medication and growing all these eggs? Sure. And sure, absolutely. And are you more likely to get a bad egg out of the system? And are you more likely? Yeah. So that's a pretty and like hyperstimulation, and exactly. you know, that sort so that's of thing. That's a pretty controversial one. Um, the all the fertility scientists and the doctors and lab staff working in fertility will go. The evidence does not suggest there is any issue with compromised eggs as a result of IVF and ICSI. And people who don't work in the field at all will go. There is an increased instance of babies being born with chromosomal and structural problems as a result of IVF and ICSI. And then the fertility special will go. Yeah, but that's not the IVF and the ICSI's fault. That's because we're dealing with with infertility and struggling couples and there's other problems going on some of which we know some of which we don't which is contributing to the increased chromosomal structural problem it's not our fault we're part of the solution not the problem and it goes back and forth in that fashion all the time the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle i do think that if you hyper stimulate and you push and push and push the ovaries to get a huge number of eggs you start to see compromise in in the eggs now does that mean you're also compromising the first eggs that you would have got with a lower dose of stimulation anyway. Suppose I can give a low dose and I can get 10 eggs. I can give a higher dose and get 20 eggs. I know, I, can, I already know that I'm less likely to get a baby from eggs 10, 11 to 20 than I am from eggs 1 to 10. But by getting 20 eggs, I'm not compromising eggs 1 to 10. Okay. And I'm increasing my overall chance. Fine, I'm starting to run into the law of diminishing returns, but more eggs still means more embryos, still means higher chance of baby, albeit at a lower rate. Now, the most recent data, I think, suggests that once you go over 32 or 34 eggs, which would be very unusual in any given cycle, you start to see a compromise in the quality, you know, in the quality in of everything, of potentially, okay. you know? So you definitely, it's never a case of, I just want to turn the turn the, the amp up to 11. I just want to dial it all up, but I want to push as hard as I can and get as many eggs as I can. You need to be more restrained than that. The trend across recent years has been to get more eggs and more eggs equals more embryos, but there is a limit on that. Yeah. And you can push too hard. And one of the things we try to do, so that's why, and it's something we have a lot of conversation with patients. About, well, why don't you just give me more of the fertility? Drugs. Just give me more, you know, and more because there's because you'll hit a law of diminishing returns. You'll saturate the receptors, the FSH receptors. You won't get many more eggs in most cases. And in those cases where you can get more eggs, it's a bad idea. Yeah. There's an op 
depending on who you talk to, what's the optimal number of eggs in a given cycle? And it's impossible to answer. A lot of embryologists will tell you, oh, it's about 14 or 15 or 16. Don't really want more than that. But when I've looked at internal audits and clinics I've worked in, it's kind of, well, actually, you know what? 22, 23, 24 isn't bad. Now, most people can't get 22, 23, yeah. 24 eggs in a cycle. But when you can, it's maybe not terrible. And we tend to get ruled, and this is terrible, we tend to get ruled not by the data and the audit and the overall to get ruled by the last time that happened and what happened in that one you know <laughs> yeah. well I remember that time and I got 25 eggs and she had a baby and she's got 12 embryos frozen and her fertility locked in forever it's fantastic <laughs> versus oh she's 25 eggs and none of them were mature and none of them fertilized and really that's changed my mind now. you need to not do that you need yeah. to so if you're working in a clinic you're working in an organization you need to be constantly auditing all those KPIs mm. you need to be constantly looking at how many, how, what dosages are we using? How many follicles are we getting? How many eggs is that turning into? How many of them are mature? How many are getting to blastocyst? How many are giving pregnancies? How many are giving babies? And you need to know that because while the person sitting across from you as a patient is an individual and you treat them as an individual, you need to be able to bring the power of your knowledge, what you've done and what you can do to the table and go, the data supports in you I know you're a special unique snowflake, but in you, a 32-year-old woman with an AMH of 20 supports doing this. Yeah. But if you give me a higher dose, I get more eggs, You possibly, but the data supports doing this. And it's like, the, it's the overall picture. Exactly. It's not just about how many eggs you get. It's that whole process and the end exactly. result, which essentially is what someone wants a baby. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And yeah. sometimes you you get lucky and sometimes you get unlucky. unlucky. Sometimes you do an optimal cycle, you've got great embryos, you've got no baby. Sometimes... You do a cycle that kind of goes a bit sideways, that doesn't, then you kind of fall through the stages a little bit. And at the end, you get a baby out of it. And yeah. that's a win. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you should go for a suboptimal cycle the next time because it gave you a baby the last time. Yeah. Although, try telling people that. Um, it, but it does mean you just have to be objective and you have to be clear about why you're instructed, why you're doing something one way or the other. Yeah. Um, so... You kind of answered one of my questions was, will I lose eggs faster? Yeah. So no, no, No is the short answer on that, I think. Um, I, I suppose I'm open to my mind being changed on that if data emerges, but it doesn't appear to be. And the other question we get asked a lot, because you're giving stimulation medications, you're pushing ovaries and you're kicking up somebody's estrogen, are we increasing risks of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, yes. endometrial cancer? It does not appear that we are. <clears throat> which is great. And there's, there's pretty strong data on that at this point as well. So that's, good. that's encouraging. My last question is, um, how long is the process? Because that's, you know, and I know how long is a yeah. piece of string, but like, say if someone came to therapy and had their nurse consultation, had some testing done, had a consultation with you, came up with a treatment plan, how okay. long from that initial nurse consultation to potentially so, becoming pregnant? Let's pretend you come into us, it's... 1st of September, for argument's sake, I'm just picking data of the sky. You see a nurse in early September, you have some testing done that month, you see me in the second half of September, and you go, right, I really want to do IVF as quickly as I can. Realistically, what would probably happen, and it will, obviously, there's massive variables here, it would be reasonable to think that if you were still seven days away from your next period, that you could get started on stimulation medications with your next period. So that would probably be early October-ish, you know? Yep. So you'd start your, you'd be on some meds before that, but, but that's, let's not worry about that for a minute. You'd start on your stimulation medications with the period, give or take. You'd take them for about 10 to 14, 10 to 12 to 14 days, 10 to 12 days probably. 
Then you'd have an egg collection two days after that. And then you might have an embryo transfer five or six days after that. And then a pregnancy test 12 days after that. So that would be kind of mid-November. So not too long, no. really. Now, sometimes you might have to freeze all the embryos. And that would and add that three weeks onto that time frame because you freeze the embryos and then start a slightly different process. Here's a question. Process. Why would you be freezing the embryos? So many different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we would anticipate that we're going to have a freeze-all rate probably around 40%. I think. And freeze-all just means that you freezing. go through the collection, the fertilization, you have embryos, and then you freeze then everything. You freeze so why might you freeze them? The two big reasons that we would freeze uh, in a normal routine cycle is that a scan or a blood test had indicated to us that the womb wasn't in an optimal condition for an embryo transfer. Your progesterone might be high, the lining might not look so good. So in that case, you're way better off freezing. Because you might lose embryos exactly. into a suboptimal kind of condition or whatever. Absolutely. The other reason is that you might be teetering around the fringes of ovarian hyperstimulation. Mm. And we'll get into ovarian hyperstimulation another day, but suffice to say that it's a condition whereby you move from controlled stimulation of the ovaries to a slightly uncontrolled uh, situation. And that can have serious health implications. That can have implications for your fertility health, for your general health. So it's a big, it can be a big deal. The one thing that feeds hyperstimulation more than anything else is pregnancy. So if somebody's teetering around the fringes and you do an embryo transfer and they get pregnant, they're far more likely to flip into full-blown moderate or severe hyperstimulation, perhaps wind up being bedbound or in hospital or, 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 or something worse. So you really want to avoid that. Now, in the past, when we froze embryos, we would lose about a third of them whenever we thought them. So, Anytime you did a freeze instead of a transfer, you were thinking you had, I'm subtracting 30% overall sure. from the success rate. So I've got, to, I've got to balance that against the risk. Like, it, the lining looks suboptimal. Okay. Does it look 30% suboptimal? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it becomes a math there's question. A risk, yeah. There's a risk to the woman. Uh, what, how bad is the risk? Well, there's a 30% there's a chance she'll die. Okay, fine. We're not going to do that. Okay. There's a 1% chance you might wind up in hospital. Oh, geez. Now we're into, you sure, know. Yeah. And, and so it was a much more of a balancing act. With newer freezing techniques, the freeze survival rate, 97, 98, 99%. That's amazing. So yeah. it's really safe to freeze embryos. And as a result, we're freezing more and more. Finally, there is a school of thought that says frozen embryo transfers work better than fresh transfers. That even when the lining looks good and the bloods are fine, the act of stimulating the ovaries has a negative impact on the lining of the womb. And so all cycles should be freeze all cycles. Now, that is controversial data. <laughs> so it's, I think it's not strong enough now. I think if things look really optimal and absolutely fine and the risks are low, it is reasonable to proceed with a fresh transfer. But at the slightest sniff or hint of a problem, you should freeze. And that's where most clinics are falling at the moment. Some clinics have moved into a freeze-all strategy. So as a, as a general rule of thumb, we, we freeze, they freeze everything. And that's fine. I, I think it's a perfectly reasonable medical approach. I don't have a problem with it. It's slightly easier logistically for the clinic or the organization to run a freeze-all strategy because mm. you can be much more organized about your, your workflow and your process and how you manage the patients. So I'm always just slightly wary, and perhaps I'm being a bit cynical here, but I'm slightly wary of data that supports what the field wants to do 
anyway, right? Because <laughs> yeah. you buy into, you get a lot more buy-in. But right now, I feel very, very strongly that freezing is not a bad thing. I'm not quite at the freeze-all stage, but I reserve the right to change my mind pending pending data coming out. And I do know plenty of people who are very wedded to the notion and they're very smart people, a lot smarter than I am. And so maybe they're onto something. Uh, and it's something that we need to keep a close eye on. For example, with the reciprocal IVF program, it'll all be frozen. We're freezing everything. We're not doing any fresh transfers. Yeah, because otherwise you're trying to sync up two people's cycle and... Which isn't, then, impo which isn't impossible. It's yeah. very manageable. But I am putting somebody on medications for a transfer that might never happen. Yeah, because you, yeah, because so if you end up with with embryos and one partner has gone through the egg collection, you have these beautiful embryos, and the other partner, for whatever reason, levels are off, exactly. thyroid is high, you know, something exactly. could happen. Exactly, and I can very capably hide behind the data and say, look, this is a perfectly safe thing to do. This is a normal thing to do in in an awful lot of centres. So, so it's great that we have that resource drawn now and it could be in the future we'll freeze everything but maybe in 20 years time even there's some data yeah we just don't know so i mean obviously this is an ongoing thing it seems to be a really safe really effective way of managing things um and so you really should if you're in your own side be guided by the clinical circumstance be guided by the team who are minding you and, and, and take their advice right. well i'll come back to you in 10 years on that because one of my kids is a fresh and the other is a frozen so i love that that's two that's an, that's enough that's enough data we can we can close we can the book just, when yeah. we look at those two in, 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 we'll, we'll look at their we'll look at their junior cert scores or whatever it is and uh that'll we'll we'll, we'll let the lancet know <laughs> Um, final question. This is more of a, a fun one. Do you um, tend to get patients who test before the 12 days? Uh, well, I or do think, people come in and lie to you and yeah, say, oh, no, I didn't, you know, I didn't no, do an at-home test? I would say 90% do. I would say 10% tell me. Um, <laughs> so I think, look, so I'm blue in the face on this. Don't test early. You're not going to help yourself. You're only going to give yourself anxiety. You're only going to you worry. You might yourself. get a false positive. Yeah, you might, might get, get a false, false positive. Let it flow over from the HCG injection. You might get a false negative because it hasn't kicked into the system yet. I'm not saying it's entirely without value either, because when I say, oh, it's entirely without value, but I can see that there's some value in it. And I can see why people do it, and I'm not going to be able to stop it. But if you are going to do that, by, just go go for it. I guess I don't think it's a brilliant idea. But please, 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 don't get too wedded to the result. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not going to get wedded to the result. And you know what everybody's going to tell you. They're going to say, we, we need a blood. We need a blood test and we need it done at the appropriate time. Yeah. And that's the only way we can tell. Sure. If you come into me and you come into me on day 12 for your blood test, I tested five days ago, it was negative. I tested six days ago, it was negative. I tested seven days. Yes, that is going to make me more guarded, yeah. in my opinion, about what this blood test is going to show. It is much more likely to be negative than positive. But, but it could still be positive. It could still be positive. Blood is blood is thicker than water. It's more reliable than urine. Uh, we know all of these things. We know there's other factors involved. So, yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody, it's very hard not to. I know if it was me, I'd, I'd struggle to know. Oh, well, we 100% did. 100%. Now, did you tell the people that you did? <laughs> no. There we are. So, yeah. No. Um, and so actually, the world turns. Actually, do you know what? Um, the second time, so we had like an, an early um, loss with our first transfer and then we had a second frozen transfer. And um, I actually didn't tell my wife that I was testing because I was, I was just so afraid that it, it was not going to be successful. And 
um, I got one of the digital ones yep. and I, I did it like really early in the morning. It was a Saturday morning, never forget it. And I snuck off, didn't tell her and I did it and it came up as it just said pregnant and I just ran in and she knew she saw my face and she knew she's like did you test (laughs) and I was like yes (laughs) and the most unusual part of that story is that you said you only bought one I know, but they're expensive. Oh, I know. They're putting you're, you're you're putting some company's kids through college. I mean, like nobody ever buys one pregnancy test. That's that's the most we unusual part. We bought loads of the cheap ones, but yeah. the digital ones oh, are yeah. like pricey, oh. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I bought ten Duff ones, and I don't trust them. So now I'm back at the pharmacy. Actually, right. for the second child, I think I bought some in deals. <laughs> See. That's just standard sa- second and, child. And you're saying the difference between fresh and frozen embryos? <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. I think we have the writings on the wall. <laughs>